chapter 10 this morning, Joshua chapter 10. And we've been in this study in the book of Joshua called uh, Conquering Canaan. And uh, Canaan being a picture of the place, uh, really uh, literally a place that Israel was to go in and dwell and possess. But it is a type or a picture for all believers, for the Christian, of the place that Christ wants us in resting in him and the promises that he's given us. And much of that, as we've discovered, is something that both God works and orders our steps and goes before us, but also how we ourselves are responsible to go in and also enter into those spiritual places God wants us to be. And so that's been the focus here of this series as we've looked at it. And we've looked at a number of different things. We've looked at several battles that have taken place and were recorded here in the book of Joshua, the historical book. And each one of these battles representing a different aspect of the spiritual battle that believers fight. And uh, we certainly don't fight for a land or a physical battle. It may, may be an actual physical battle in that way, but we don't uh, really, our battle is of the highest which is a spiritual battle in with principalities and powers that sometimes aren't clearly seen ephesians chapter 6 talks about that and tells us to arm ourselves for the day of battle with spiritual weapons right the the bible prayer the armor of god you know and you go down through that and you read that in ephesians chapter 6 and so the book of joshua pictures really uh, a literal historic time in Israel's history when they went in to possess the land, but we uh, in this age fight a different battle. But I hope that you've gathered very helpful things as we've gone through this book. Today we pick it up in Joshua chapter 10, and uh, I won't read the opening verses only because it has a lot of names in there and all that. I I could pronounce them, but it's not really much benefit to that, uh, other than to say that chapter 10 opens up with five kings Uh, kings of Canaan that join forces to attack Gibeon remember last week we looked at the Gibeonites and the people of Gibeon and they had made an allegiance deceptively but they made an allegiance with Israel and they there was a covenant made and Joshua honored that covenant and when that happened the enemies of Israel also became the enemies of Gibeon and they decided to attack the Gibeonites and Joshua, true to his word, would make good on the treaty he made with the Gibeonites and fight with them to defend them. And so the opening verses begin with that and explain a little bit of those things. Now, I will say this, that the Bible is filled with lots of instances where a day starts off and all of a sudden you find yourself in the middle of something you didn't plan, right? We've probably had many days like that maybe today is like that maybe this week has been filled with those kind of activities in your life Um, and in sometimes we're thrust into the battle and it may not even be our own battle maybe somebody else's but we're there and we are reminded that God is there with us Jesus promised his followers I will never leave you nor what forsake you and that promise is as good today as it was back then when it was said there in the book of Hebrews, also in the Old Testament, in that. And another verse that stands out, and I was thinking of this verse several times this week, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
And I'm glad. And sometimes we don't experience the present help of God until we are in trouble. And we just don't know it, I think. And you know that by experience when everything around you may uh, be indeed falling apart or the battle has been brought to your doorstep uh, and you can take refuge in the Lord and understand that he is a very present help in trouble. So we pick it up in Joshua chapter 10 and in verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly, save us, and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not of man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the roads that goes to Bethhoron, and struck them down as far as Ezekah and Machedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Bethhoron, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, as we come to uh, look at this uh, text this morning, we pray, O God, that you would just work and you would teach us and help us and encourage us and reprove us if necessary. And Lord, we would give you the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This section of scripture, we find where... Um, the battle begins to unfold and there's some amazing things that happen here. And I just want to reiterate that God is able to do some amazing things. And that's, if you want to look at lessons for the battle, lesson number one, there's a lesson about the Lord. And I have discovered in my walk with the Lord over these now over 30 years that I'm always learning new lessons. I, even lessons that I think I've already learned. God is always teaching me new lessons. And sometimes they, they're the school of hard knocks. And sometimes it's the school of mistakes and things you do. And you realize, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And, and then there's times that God just gives you insight from his word. And you yield to him that way. And, uh, of course, that's the best way, isn't it? When he, you read it and then you understand it, you believe it, you follow in obedience. And you do that. Well, we learn some things here about the Lord, and some of this goes with his character, of course. And right there in verse 8, when we open this up, you see the phrase, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear. And I tell you, every time you come across a verse in scripture where it says, do not fear, I would highlight that because you need to have those kind of verses in your Bible. And when you open up your word, the word of God, they stand right out. And as someone has said, I, I've never counted up all of them, but there's supposedly about 365 do not fears in the Bible. There's one for every day, and it's good because we need one for every day, uh, at least, and probably all of them for every day. The world is a fearful place. And just as Joshua has entered in and they've come up, remember, against Jericho, then they went against um, Ai uh, later, and then they would come up against the Gibeonites. And of course the Gibeonites deceived them in that. And there's other places they had to go and conquer. 
And just as things seem to be going good, all of a sudden the enemy rears his head. These five kings, they set in order um, a means by where they want to come and attack the allies now of Israel. And we see that that happens. And by the way, I think one of the great characteristics of the Lord and the Holy Spirit as he works in the life of any believer is that he's able to give peace in the midst of trouble. And one of my favorite verses in Philippians 4, 7, where Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There is a peace that only comes to those who know Christ Jesus. And if you know the Lord, as Joshua knew the Lord, he was able to experience the peace of God, even though everything around him was not going to be peaceful. And that's where he goes. And it says here, he'll guard your hearts and minds. It doesn't necessarily say he's going to guard your property. He's going to guard your well-being in the sense he will often put up those kind of protections. But he guards our hearts and our minds to be able to rise above our fears and rise above the emotion of it and to trust him. And only that kind of peace, that peace can only be experienced in the midst of trouble, right? And that's kind of, uh, again, what Paul is talking about here. We're to, to do that. Now, Jesus himself, in John's gospel, in chapter 14, he greets his disciples and he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And, and I might just say that kind of peace is a tenuous peace at best. You know, one... One day, you know, we're, our political leaders are standing up and saying, we've brokered peace somewhere, you know, in some nation, whatever. And then the next week, they're scrambling militaries to try to keep those peace treaties on the table and still enforced. And there's really no peace. And that's the kind of peace the world offers. It's not a, a kind of peace that lasts. But the Lord gives peace. And he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. By the way, the same Lord who spoke to Joshua and said, Fear not, is the same Lord that told his disciples, Don't be afraid. And he passes that on to you this morning as well from his word as a follower of Christ. We're to be like that. Do not be afraid. Now, not only did he say that, but he gives a promise. So we see his peace and we see his promise. Look, for I have delivered them into your hand. Now when the Lord is saying this, it's, it's in the future tense, and, or in the past tense, excuse me, of a future event. It hadn't yet happened. Joshua hadn't gone in and had this great victory, but God says it's already done. And I want to remind you that the victory is already won. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, He's paid for your sins in full. From the time when He paid it on the cross to all eternity future, He's paid for it all. Done deal. All we need to do is rest in that and by faith claim that. And God gives us that same deliverance. I am so thankful for that. We find that that is a, another common theme that the Lord reminds his people over and over again through scripture, how he promises them um, uh, and really gives us that hope for a future. In Romans chapter 8, in that last section from verses 31 on, 
You have Paul saying, and what can separate us from the love of God? And then he names all these things, right? And basically sums it up by saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then in verse 37, he says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, the secret being there, him. I'm a conqueror today over my sin because of him. I'm a conqueror today over death because of him. I'm a conqueror today over my circumstances and everything that comes at me and everything that has come at me this week because he has done it. It's because of him. Do you know him? You need to know him. God is good that way. Last, he gave us his power. He gave us his power. Look at this. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Didn't see that coming, did you? You think of those kings, they are, you know, I kind of picture it sort of like, you know, these tribal kings, that's what they were. Uh, and they make this loose alliance and they come with all their weapons and they come with their training and they come with their mighty men of valor and they go up against Israel. And as they, as they get into the battle, God opens up the heavens and hail falls. Hail. I don't know if you've ever been in a hailstorm where they got fairly large hail. Probably the biggest uh, hailstones that I've ever been outside in and all that stuff were probably somewhere around um, like maybe quarter size, you know, like a, a quarter and a little bit higher. And if you ever get hit in the head with one of those, I'll tell you what, it hurts. It's like somebody throwing a little rock at you, you know, and, and especially even this old hard head, that ice, man, it would crack, but, but you know, it hurts. And you know it can dent vehicles, just that kind of stuff. One inch hail, I mean, just devastates vehicles and stuff. And um, you imagine hailstones that are really heavy. And there are some record holder hailstones. Look them up sometime. You know, great big things that are the size of, you know, like cantaloupes or, or softballs or those things. And that's just hail that gets caught up there way up high and it keeps producing, you know, liquid water forming into ice around it. And then eventually it gets heavy enough, it spits it out and bang. And when that takes you out, you're done. And God opens up the heavens and hail falls and kills the enemy. More of them died that way than with the sword. You know, when that happens, you can't give anybody glory but God. And that's what took place here. See, God was not going to deliver. And throughout this whole book, you find out, God was not going to deliver Israel by the sword. He used them and they were engaged in the battle. But he did the work himself. And the victory was secured by him. You know, there's a verse um, in, in uh, I don't know if I, hopefully I put it in there. Yeah, in the book of Job. And I've always read this, you know, the first part of this verse, verse 22. The question goes out to Job in his trial. And he's questioning God and he's questioning all the things that have gone on. Now, he's, he's going to the right source. If you're going to question someone, question God. God's a big God. He can handle your questions. And he can give you the answers. And he asks these probing questions into Job's life. He says, have you entered the treasure of the snow? You know, we're living up in northern Maine and we're back in the snow. 
Okay, I hate to say it. You look outside and you all know we're in snow again. And it's still snowing. Probably keeps snowing. You know, God knew it was going to snow today. And according to the word of God, he actually is the one who knows the storehouse. That's what the word treasure means there. The storehouse of the snow. I've never been able to go up into the clouds and look at snowflakes forming. I'm sure there's pilots up there that see something like that. But, but I've never had that opportunity to actually see them form. And probably they don't either. God does. He knows the snow. Or have you seen the treasure of the, the treasury of the hail? God knows where the hail is produced. Now, the next verse, look at this. Which I, the Lord, have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. The book of Job predates the book of Joshua, by the way. And Job lived at the time of Abraham in that era. So, 400 plus years before Joshua's day. Joshua most likely would have had this word. And I'm wondering if Joshua, as he's out there watching this unfold and people getting killed by the hail, thinking, that's what God meant to Job. And by the way, we wouldn't have that Bible verse in our Bible had not Job been in trouble. Sometimes our trouble is for a blessing for others, and it may not even be in our lifetime. Not only did it comfort Job, but it also would comfort people later on. And it comforts me today to know, no matter what, God's in charge of the snowplow. All right? Lesson number two. And, and by the way, i got to back up because I didn't read the whole section there, but there's another thing that takes place. Verse 13, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. And is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. We read here again of a miracle that takes place not only with the hail that was falling that was ordained of god but the sun itself stood still very interesting um some would say that's just impossible you can't just have the sun stop i mean think of all the consequences of the sun not working and by the way it's a observation of from the earth as joshua is recording it of what appeared so we know that the sun doesn't really stop, does it? Uh, it, it or I should say the, the sun doesn't move is what I mean. We move. I mean, everything's moving out there, but we move around the sun and we rotate on our axis and we get a 24-hour day and we know that from that. But, but standing here on the earth, if we were to look out and the sun didn't appear to go down when it was supposed to go down, we'd say, wow, the sun has stopped working. And the moon itself too. It was a supernatural event. And you may try to explain it. You know, I've often thought, well, what was it that happened that day? Uh, was it something like the 1859 Carrington event that took place when uh, that's named after Richard Carrington, who on September 1st of, of 1859 was, was observing the sun through a telescope. And he noted that the sun got brighter. 
significantly brighter, and he didn't know why, but noted it. And come to find out just a couple days later, the earth would be hit with a, uh, what we call a coronal mass ejection, a CME, which is a sol solar flare. And uh, it was, in recorded history, the largest solar flare event thus far in recorded history. And you say, well, whoopee-ding, what's that? Happens all the time. We had several this week, actually, that hit the earth, which were in the strong to one even extreme, but it didn't do a lot. Uh, if if the, it wasn't overcast like it had been for the last few days, we would have probably seen the northern lights because they were visible quite far south this last couple days. And on the 1859 Carrington event, early September, the northern lights were seen as far south as the Caribbean. Miners in the Rocky Mountains woke up around 2 a.m. and thought it was day because it was overcast and it was so bright that they thought the sun was up. Of course, nobody you know, had clocks and alarm clocks like we do today, and they figured it must be time to get working. So they began to make breakfast. That's how bright just the, the polar auroras were, and <clears throat> there was lots of, of things with just that. It was so much, actually... Um, these solar charged particles hitting the earth that telegraph operators that was about the only electrical devices in that time that were in use uh, you know across the world noted that they did not have to hook up batteries to their telegraph uh, keys to transmit because there was so much induction in the power in the telegraph lines and even some caught fire so there was a lot of energy hitting the earth basically and causing an electrical current with the electro Electrical mag or the electromagnetic field of the Earth, all that stuff is is explained. It's all natural law. However, what about a supernatural God, who can he can even go further than something like that? And that could easily explain why it appeared night, you know, in the middle of the night, why it looks like day. People in England said you could read a newspaper by the light of that night of the Carrington event, um, but. Now picture what the scripture says, that the sun stood still. And the moon also. And I take the word of God for the word of God. I think that's the literal approach. It makes sense. And it makes sense because there are really no natural laws that can't be superseded by the God of nature. And he did that. And there's hints in um, literature from the Chinese, the Babylonians, the Aztecs, the Incas, the Egyptians and the Assyrians of uh, an existence of an extra long day. So uh, those things aren't easily explained, and they're often written off in, uh, in discourse today by people who say, well, that's just, they get it wrong. I don't think so. They got it right. God did a miracle. And there are lots of other evidences. I won't go into that to look at that. But... We find lessons about the Lord, and some of the lessons there, again, we see what the heavens themselves declared, that he is God of creation, and he's God of the heavens, he's God of the earth in that. Joshua, next next point, lesson for the, about the people. So there's a lesson about the Lord, but there's a lesson about the people. And that's found in the following verses. Now, we read, first of all, and, and looking at this, there's a very much a personal aspect. Up to this point, as we've read this chapter, the Lord is dealing specifically with the leader, Joshua. 
He's dealing with the people there as well. But we also learn from the people themselves what takes place. Joshua chapter 10 verse 16 says, But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. Sounds like the Taliban, you know, up there in the caves of Afghanistan, hiding away. But it wasn't going to do any good. And it was told Joshua saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And the idea here is this, and the the illustration, the lesson we take home, is that though God had conquered them already, they were defeated. These were just the kings that had escaped and maybe a few people with them. And they take refuge in a cave. And you could have just walked away and said, we did our part. You know what? There's no more need to to chase after these guys. But as you know that if you don't deal with something completely, and really these enemies that are pictured here represent the spiritual enemy every one of us has. Not only does it represent what Satan, our enemy, is doing, and if you allow Satan to have a foothold, he will keep that and it'll grow. It also represents sin. And if you allow sin in your life to remain and not deal with it before God, it festers and grows. It pollutes. It's the way it always is. And these five kings represent that part of the believer's warfare. Joshua was commanded, or he commanded, take a large stone and roll it against the cave. There's a picture here, again, of burying that which needs to be buried. (laughs) And then putting a guard there. And my friends, when we repent of sin, and for believers... There's two aspects of repentance. There's the repentance first and foremost when we come to faith in Christ. We say, Lord, I believe. Take my sin and and Lord, forgive me of my sin. And he promises he's done that. And positionally, your sin is forgiven. You're saved. You're saved up, the Bible says, to the uttermost. But the practice of sin still remains. And these kings represent that. They're there. And if you allow them to live and move, they'll rebuild and they'll come back at you again. And we see that over and over again with sin. Joshua says, I want you to bury it and I want you to set a guard. And for sin, we need to do that. Set a guard in your life. Deal with your sin. I need to deal with sin all the time. And I say, God, guard my heart. Guard my mind. Guard my actions. And make practical steps to do that it wasn't just that joshua said oh let him live in the cave he put a stone there pretty hard to move a stone right and guard it do that in your own life if it means keeping devices away from you do it those kind of things if it's robbing you of your walk with the lord whether through waste of time or I think of internet pornography, those kind of areas. That's a, that's a disaster going on right now in our culture. And it's robbing people of their closeness and fellowship with God. Put some practical things in your life. Take some things out. Do some things. Build some hedges, some protections, those areas. Be proactive. That's what a guard is. It goes out and he's guarding. The Bible talks about that. And by the way, self-control, that's pictured here. And that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? Galatians chapter 5. 
we need to exercise self-control. And we don't do it alone. We do it with the Lord's help and His grace. And we're able to. Well, we also must confront the enemy. Joshua chapter 10, verse 22. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And I won't take the time, but each one of those kings, it's interesting, the places that are named there represent, in many ways, an aspect of our own life, spiritually. For instance, Jerusalem. It is the place of peace. Interesting, the king who comes from the place of peace was anything, but he was making war. You want peace with God, you've got to deal with it. Hebron means fellowship. Sometimes our fellowship is broken by sin. Not only with God, but with each other. You need to deal with that. Don't let fellowship be broken. And I could go down through that. But anyways... So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and he said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of a good courage for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Picture of defeat. Not defeat on the neck, but defeat as in defeated. Yeah, but that's what it means. When you lay down and you put your foot on someone's neck, they're done. And the picture here, very real imagery, a historic image of a battle, and they were conquered and they were killed. But for the spiritual aspect of that, for the Christian, that's what we need to do with sin. You can't just toy with it, put it in the cupboard, whatever. It needs to be cut off. And that's what's pictured here. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13. He who covers his sin will not prosper. See as long as those kings were in the cave. They had an opportunity to come out of the cave. And redo what they were doing. Joshua brought them out of the cave and dealt with it. And really Joshua pictures for us the Lord doesn't he? He's a type of Christ in some ways. in, uh, In that he was a leader he was the one who was really not only as a leader, he exercised as a mediator kind of leader between his people and God. God was pleased to use him as a conqueror and a victor. And can I tell you this? Jesus pictures for us what Joshua did in a greater way. When Jesus hung on the cross, the sin of the world was placed upon him. He became sin for us. He took on the very nature, uh, not on him but as, as the sin nature, but he took on him, the, should say, the, the sin and the consequences just like these kings. They were evil. Jesus took all the evil that's ever been done. And he took it at the cross. He hung on the cross. They took him down off a cross. They put him in a cave, in a tomb. And what they do, they rolled a stone. And you know that would have been the end of Jesus and the end of payment for sin and everything else if that cave had never opened again. But he rolled the stone away. And he came out victorious over the enemy. And he went into the cave for us. You see a picture there of salvation, really. A greater battle. Because it was a perfect Savior. 
who perfectly takes our sin. And if you, you're, it says, he who's, who covers his sins will not prosper. So long as you are destined to cover your sin by yourself, it'll never work. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. That's what we need. We need to come before the Lord and say, Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He promises to save us, to forgive us, to restore us. If you've broken fellowship with the Lord because of your sin, He's able to restore it. We must conquer our enemy. We must confront him, but we have to conquer him. And afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and and hanged them on on five trees, and they were hanging on the trees until the evening. And so it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and he took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. Again, a picture of what Christ did for us. He took our sin. We must conquer our enemy. The Bible says this. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Jesus is a greater Savior, a greater leader. Because Jesus died for his enemies. You don't see that in the book of Joshua. Like that directly. But here you do. You see where Christ has made us free. And Paul states a theological position here. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's it's also a practical position. Because by faith in Christ, my sin has been crucified with him. I should have been on that cross. Instead, he took it. But you know, it has been said there's the practical aspect of crucifixion too. When someone was crucified, they, they may be on that cross um, for, well, some in history recorded even a few days, depending on how they were crucified. Most people didn't last that long. They lasted a matter of hours, some only minutes. But when they were crucified, I am told that the date of death was applied and the very time of death was applied when they were actually crucified, not actually when they expired. And someone put it this way, and I've always thought about that. Sometimes that old nature that's been crucified with Christ, it's still wiggling around. And if you feed it, it'll revive. But it's been crucified with Christ. Don't let it revive realize that you're a dead man walking in that way and because of that he's made us alive to live unto him sin gone and now he's given us a fresh life we can love him and we can do that we need to be separate from uh you know we have to be fighting the fight and and be separate from that lastly i just want to look at this one a lesson about the fight a lesson about, I put Anne, but a, le- a lesson about the fight. And this really is coupled with the end of this chapter into chapter 11. I won't read all those verses, there's a lot of them. But one thing you get over and over again throughout all scripture, but especially in the book of Joshua, is that you may fight a battle today, but that battle's not over. You know, I think of David, right? I mean, 
David, we sang a little song this morning in Sunday school, if you were here, and it was uh, only a boy named David, right? And in that it says, only a little sling, and five smooth stones he took. And he slew the giant with that, okay? And that, that little story, that's the story of David doing that. And remember, David goes up against, uh, in 1 Samuel 17, you read of it, he goes up against the king of, or the, um, the Philistines and the giant of Gath. And I've often thought, if you could just take David when he was probably a young teenager, and that's when it, that happened in his life, and he goes out and he goes down into the valley of Elah and he slays the giant there, cuts the giant's head off. Kind of gruesome, you know. You think you need violence on TV? Just read your Bible. There's lots of violence. But it's the, God's reality of the harshness of sin and evil in our world and confronting it. And a good man goes down into a valley to confront one of the most hideous evil men there was. And he's victorious. Because of God. And if I could just take that and say, all right, that's all we know about David. Let's leave it, right? And David would have been this great victor always and all that stuff. But you know what? We read, we have this whole life of David. Not every detail, but we have a lot of details. We find out David's life was a life where time and time again, he had to face other giants. And he had to even face the, the giants of the same family. And he had to still face the Philistines over and over again. So just because you're victorious today doesn't mean you should let your guard down and say, I'll always be victorious. Because he raises his head again in that way. And the lesson about the fight is this, that we must fight daily. It's a constant battle. It's a waking up in the morning and moving it forward. Keep going. Don't give up ground. On that day, Joshua took Makedah and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Mecca as he had done to the king of Jericho. And there's a lot of verses, I won't read them all, but the deal with that same thing. He took, the, he took the battle to the enemy. That's being proactive. Not just waiting for the enemy to come to him, but he went to the battle, and he took it to the enemy. I think that's what we need to do. And by the way, we need to understand that this battle, it's a daily thing. And it's a daily measure of, of understanding that, first and foremost, that you, know, you live in the today. You don't never live in the tomorrow. I mean, I, I think that way sometimes. I wake up and I think, well, I can do that tomorrow. I can be a procrastinator if I, um, if I choose to be. I've had to rise above that or else my life would just be gone. But... But I would say it's easier to procrastinate. And sometimes it's little things like, you know, uh, the other day it snowed about that much. And I said, I won't shovel the driveway because we have more snow coming. I'll wait till the, this one. Now I'm going to do it. But, you know, that's no big deal this time of year. Hopefully it'll melt. But, but there's times that's, that's not a big deal. I can get in the yard still. But it's another thing when you're dealing with things like eternal things. Because there's people today all across the world who are living in the today and expecting that tomorrow will still be there for them. And that is not the case, my friends, for so many. There will be thousands and thousands of people across our globe today that this will be their final day on earth. And many of them didn't see it coming. 
Proverbs chapter 27 verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Pretty good advice. James repeats that in the New Testament. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. Salvation is today. Hebrews, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, for he says... In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. My friends, I don't know, you know, those of you that are here, um, maybe you're here uh, today and and you don't know the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. There's no guarantee you'll be here next week on Sunday. There's no guarantee you will be this day having it finished out. And I, I'm not bringing bad news to you. I, I'm just saying that's reality. Because one of these days is going to be our last day. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and by faith turned to Him? And He's, he's promised to save you. That's the day of salvation. Tomorrow never gets here. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. There are people who will turn to you and say, well, you know, when I get old, I'll look into that. And they discover that they never got old. Or when they got old, it was too late. Don't be that kind of person. The battle needs to be taken to the enemy, and it needs to be done today. Joshua chapter 11, verse 18. It says, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. A long time. I don't, again, want to discourage you today. That's not my intention. But can I just be a realist? The sins that plague you right now, that maybe as a Christian you felt like it's just stuff that just, it just is there. And you've been victorious maybe or had measures of victory and all that. Can I just say that expect that it might be a long time to battle it. Might be your whole life. I've said this before. I remember sitting in Bible school as a young man and uh, sitting there in Mr. Breeden's class. Mr. Breeden was in his 80s at that time. Uh, he'd been here preaching, you know, years ago. You, some of you that were from that time know Mr. Breeden. And I will say in all my life, uh, I've met a lot of men that impacted me. But I will say of Mr. Breeden, he's probably one of the godliest men I ever met. I mean that. Just a man, a dear saint of God. He, he was a gentleman. Uh, he was a man that knew the word of God in and out. And he was just one of those guys, if I was to look back and say, influential men in my life, Mr. Breeden. I remember sitting in the dorm at MBBI. Sometimes I would get up early in the morning, maybe 5.30 in the morning, before our, our, our bell would ring and we'd head off the breakfast and all that. And I remember looking across the field and I could see the Breeden house and I'd see him up in his study, studying the word of God. And he used to say things like, no Bible, no breakfast. And I thought, what a good rule. That's a good Breeden proverb. No Bible, no breakfast. And the first thing I do when I get up is run to the cupboard and see what's for breakfast. Sometimes we need to stop and say, no, I need to see what's in the Bible today. All right. But I remember Mr. Breeden standing there and he was looking at all of us young whippersnappers all in our strength and everything else. And he says, men, he said it with a weak voice, sounded like mine today. 
He says, I'm in my 80s and it's harder to live for God now than it's ever been. And I thought, oh man, there's no hope for me. <laughs> I'm in my 20s, he's in his 80s and it's, it's going to get harder. It's going to get harder. Living in a world that's just crying out for your sexual purity. Living in a world that's saying, take this new thing and that thing to dull it. You know, and it's okay, and changing the rules on everything from, you know, which bathroom you use to whatever. And you say, it's hard. Can I just say, it might get harder. But slog it out. Keep going. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. And you're going to have to make war a long time to be victorious. There's a great verse in chapter 40, though, I mean, verse 40 in chapter 10. So Joshua conquered all the land. There was a measure of victory. And my friends, we have to fight with devotion because the, the, in the end, we win. But it's in the end, you win. In the meantime, how do you walk this walk as a believer? I think it's best summed up in Micah 6 8, a verse that I think of all the time. Because I think if we followed this, we'd have a different kind of walk. Here, God says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? That means to do right. God wants people to do right. To love mercy. That means looking out there and saying, where can I be merciful today? Where can I bring a cold cup of water to somebody today? Or in my case this morning, someone brought me, thank you Liz, a hot cup of coffee. Where can you show mercy today? Or maybe just somebody who's, they, they need some mercy in their life. You might be the only mercy they have. And then this one, and to walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. Not, not telling everybody how humble you are, but rather actually being humble. And that part of it, that's really what God wants us to do. I think that sums it up for the Christian. That sums it up. And in the book of Joshua, we see a leader who was like that. He did what was right, what God told him to do. He loved mercy too. He was merciful even on his enemies. He was merciful on a woman named Rahab and her family. Well, thank you, Lord, for Rahab, because I said before, she's in the lineage of Christ. Amen. For a sinner who found mercy and grace and a humility always closely dependent on God and recognize that any strength we have is from him. Let's pray. Lord, it is our grand desire even today, I believe, to walk like this to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you, O oh God. Teach us those things. Instill it in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to take the battle, whatever that battle may be, to the enemy and those spiritual foes that beset us so easily. And I pray, God, we'd walk a different walk in the course of this world, that Jesus may be glorified in everything that is done and said in our life. And may we... Just stay close to you, O oh God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.